0: morning everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. So we are um, going through our series in Genesis and find ourselves at chapter 18. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, you'll be ready when we get to the text there. Um, so the next few weeks, we're going to look at chapter 19 next week. And then for Christmas, we're going to pull out of Genesis and focus on the incarnation um, Next week is Sodom and Gomorrah. You could just think, oh, man, let's hope none of the Christmas visitors show up that week, you know. (laughs) But Sodom and Gomorrah was a mess, right? But isn't it appropriate that two weeks before Christmas, we're looking at the world in all of its messiness because that's exactly the world that Jesus came into, and that's why he came into it to bring hope, to bring cleansing, to come into the mess and make it his mess so that we could be cleaned up and healed. So I think it's very fitting, actually, that we look at Sodom and Gomorrah um, a little over a week before we uh, celebrate Christmas. All right, so um, Genesis 18, this week, Uh, Before we start to read through the text, um, we're going to read through it as we walk through it. I want to just ask you a couple questions to get you thinking a little bit here. Do you ever find yourself doubting God's ability or willingness to do miracles in your life? So for yourself... Maybe also for someone else that you know. Yeah, I know God can do the miraculous. I, I know He does miracles. He's done them in the past. You know, maybe He does them in some of those missionaries' lives, you know, in far off places. But I don't know, not for me, or doesn't seem like for Him or for her. Ever struggle with that? Ever? doubt God's ability or willingness to do the miraculous, to really intervene in a miraculous way? Or do you ever struggle with the justice of God, like the perceived lack of justice? I mean, just look at the news. Just look at what's going on in this world that's such a mess Like, why does it seem like the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? What are you doing? You're certainly not alone. Remember Psalm 73, Asaph, a leader, spiritual leader in Israel said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot, almost slipped when I considered the prosperity of the wicked. It seems like they're just doing fine. And here I'm trying to keep my hands and my heart pure, and I'm suffering. What gives? So if you struggle with the ability, the willingness of God to do the miraculous in your life, in the lives of those you love and pray for, If you struggle with the justice of God, trying to wrestle with how are you just and not dealing with this or that, first, you're not alone, but second, Genesis 18 is for you. We need this word. This word is aimed at those struggles. Um, So there's an outline in the bulletin, or the slides will be up, but in the bulletin it says there's three points. Um, that last one, do you trust him? We're going to kind of ask that question after point one and after point two rather than just at the end, okay? So just a little outline head up, heads up. Um, all right, let's go ahead and dive in. The first point, is anything too hard for Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament, his special covenant name? Is anything too hard for the Lord? When you see those all... Caps, L-O-R-D, that's referring to Yahweh, the covenant name. Verses 1 to 15. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So, you know, Abraham was not Hispanic, but this would have been siesta time, typically. It is stinking hot in the Middle East in the middle of the day. So Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Minimal activity due to the heat, right? Verse 2, he lifts up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord... If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So somehow Abraham must have recognized the divine presence in this visitation because he uses the term for Lord that is used distinctively of God in the Old Testament. So when Lord is used in the Old Testament in the sense of, kind of in the generic sense of sir, it actually has a slightly different spelling. So he must have recognized A divine visitation here. Verse 4, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. This is like a lot. Um, Way more than... Three people need. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it, to the young, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This is like a feast fit for a king. Okay? So the main themes in this chapter are flagged by verse 14 and verse 23, which creates our outline. Okay? Those two statements. But there are secondary themes in this chapter that are also worth noting. And one of them is actually hospitality. So here we see Abraham and Sarah's hospitable humility, which is actually pretty striking. So Abraham is like a 100 years old at this point. He is a great man with flocks and herds and a household, even though he hasn't had a child, you know, with Sarah yet. Remember back when Lot was carried away by Kedorlaomer and those other kings. When he rallied the men in his household, how many were there? Do you remember? This is like a are you awake check. Um, Three hundred eighteen. So he's a great man. He's got a lot of people in his household. Okay. So an elderly man who has. A lot of dignity and, you know, respect in a position like his would not run. It was dishonoring. It's kind of below your dignity. It's why in Luke 15, it's so amazing that the father, when he sees his lost son coming home, he runs to meet him and he covers him with honor, covering his shame, willing to take shame in order to give honor to that repentant son. Okay, so this speaks of how highly Abraham thought of his guests. He's rushing around like a humble, hospitable servant. And it's especially evident at the end of verse 8. Do you see that? He's standing by while they eat. He's just acting like a servant in waiting. Right? Ever been to like, one of those really nice restaurants where the, per- where the waiter is just like, or the waitress is just kind of there, like ready to... Every beck and call. I think I was at one of those once. Anyway, um, thank you, Uncle Bob. All right. So, this is, in a sense, an early illustration. Because remember, Abraham is the father of faith. What does it look like for believers to receive people? I love this. He's acting as this servant in waiting. It's like an early illustration of the kingdom of God. Mark 10 where Jesus said to his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the nations lord it over others. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be in my kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, this faith begets humility, this humble hospitality that actually, as we go on in chapter 19, Sodom was not quite a, a hospitable environment, was it? So, there's a contrast because chapters 18 and 19 go together. It's also likely that this encounter is behind the command in Hebrews 13. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So, in addition to this hospitality theme, we also see that God, again, what is this? Is this some sort of pre-incarnate, you know, presence of the Son of God and two angels? You know, what we're left with questions, right? But certainly this is God's presence with Abraham here. And so in a sense, God is eating with Abraham and Sarah, his covenant people, which is actually kind of fitting, um, because in chapter 17, there's an affirmation of the covenant of the covenant, like a reaffirmation of the covenant. the sign of circumcision was given, you know, the promise again of this promised child. Miracle baby was given again. Abraham follows through. Everybody's circumcised, all the, all the males. And so here's this meal, kind of like a covenant meal. Oftentimes, covenants were ratified at a meal. So you were eating together, representing that fellowship, that friendship. And here God is eating with his people as ratification of the covenant. You see the same thing in Exodus 24. You can look at it later. Do you remember when, you know, Um, Moses, the Mount Sinai, God comes down on the mountain, and Moses and the elders go up and they eat before God. You can take a look at it later. So anyway, it was not so surprising then, well, actually it was surprising, that the Son of God, when He comes to earth, who did He eat with? He ate with sinners, it was so shocking to the Pharisees, like, w- wait, wait a second! You're saying you're gonna make make, a, make friends and a covenant with these sinners? Well, he was signaling that his new covenant was a covenant of grace for sinners. God ate with his enemies to make them his friends. So. It's not surprising that the Lord's table is a covenant meal that we eat monthly, signifying the new covenant in his blood. So again, oftentimes, again, Genesis is this book of beginnings, right? So we see the beginning of, of a thread, a theme that runs the whole way through the Bible, and then it's anchored again in Revelation and finds its full, fullness, fulfillment in Christ and in everything made new. All right, back to the story. Verse 9. So these angelic, divine visitors say to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So we already knew from previous chapters that she was barren during her childbearing years. But now at the age of 90, she's long past menopause. So this serves to underline the absolute impossibility of her situation. Right. So verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself in disbelief, saying, after I'm worn out and... My Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure, the pleasure of bearing a child? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say... So she said that to herself. So this is omniscience at work here. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That is the key point of the first 15 verses. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, most likely the Lord, no, but you did laugh. So again, this is a secondary point, but an important one nonetheless here in verse 15. We don't lie. You and I don't lie because we have a lying problem. We lie because we have a fear problem. Have you ever noticed that? When you shade the truth, when you give way to people pleasing and tell a lie, it's because you're afraid of something. So, a little helpful, you know, wisdom from God's Word right there. Operating by fear. Fear will lead to a lack of integrity. Operating by faith will enable you to tell the truth. So that said, let's not be too harsh on Sarah here. Okay, So Abraham laughed also, right? Back in chapter 17, verse 17, he laughed when he heard this promise. And this is a beautiful thing. She is included in the list of believers in Hebrews 11 where it says this. By faith, this is Hebrews eleven eleven, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive by faith. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So yes, a moment of disbelief, but quickly it turned into confident faith, and she is memorialized in that chapter in Hebrews 11. For her faith. So, some sidebar points, lying and whatnot, but the primary point of this section is found in verse 14 is anything too hard for Yahweh, for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So, listen, God expects his people to believe that he can do the impossible. That's what this section is trying to get across. There's nothing too hard for him. Our almighty God can keep his promises no matter what seeming barriers or obstacles might be in the way. So Sarah laughed at the promise of God. And, you know, we can understand why. Have you ever laughed at the promise of God? Have you ever, like internally done the equivalent or done one of these like (sighs) (laughs) is anything too hard for the Lord God expects us to believe that he can do anything he promises do you trust him do I trust him so if he makes a promise he will make good on it no matter how impossible it seems for you or for me And if he makes a promise, he'll also provide grace to believe it. It can be a fight to believe it, right? No surprise. The Bible often speaks of the fight of faith. It's why believers down through the ages have prayed things like, I believe, help my unbelief. Or Augustine said, command what you will, but will what you command. Help me believe it and trust you and follow. Or in this case, it could be promise what you will, but give me the will to believe what you promise. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It wouldn't hurt, I don't think, for that question to be ringing in our ears this week and maybe into this new year that we're heading into. So you can imagine, let's just kind of, try to enter into the story a little bit deeper. You can imagine it probably became a regular question in Abraham and Sarah's household, don't you think? Like especially after Isaac was born. You know how families sometimes have these little mottos, they have these little things they repeat. Do your family have any of that? Do your parents do that with you? Do you do that with your kids? How many times do you think is anything too hard for the Lord? How many times do you think that was said after the birth of Isaac? How many times do you think Sarah said it? Probably, ironically, with a little laugh. Like a faith laugh. How many times do you think she said that to her little son Isaac as he grew up? How many times do you think Abraham and Sarah repeated that to each other? Perhaps that's why... When God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, Abraham obeyed crazy, considering that God would raise the dead. Hebrews 11:17. 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What are you doing? He trusted him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Here it is, Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He believed in the impossible. He'd seen it done. Well, he must be planning on doing that again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So, Think about it. God has already done the hardest things. For instance, he created a universe out of nothing. So making a miracle baby doesn't seem like it's outside the realm of possibility with God, right? And to follow the trajectory into the New Testament, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God has already taken on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. This is Advent season. I mean, that is so mind-blowing. We know the Christmas story, but we could never plumb the depths of the glory and the wonder of the incarnation. How in the world can the infinite take, like, assume the finite? How's that possible? How can God the Son become a human son? How does that happen? How can there be a God-man? Fully God, fully man. How can the sovereign king of the universe become a lowly peasant servant? How is that possible? So if God's already done that, do you think we can trust him for the impossible, the seeming impossible things that he promises us, the things that he commands us, calls us? So let, let me just kick up a couple A few. And I'd encourage you to think of the ones that you really struggle with and and think them through this way. Promises. One that comes to mind is Romans 8.18. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. (laughs) Have you ever laughed at that one? Especially if you have suffered deeply, it can be hard to believe that. It seems impossible. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. <sighs> have you ever laughed at one of the promises of God, just thinking like, you have any idea what I'm going through? How about commands? Commands. Of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. You kidding me? What are you talking about? Philippians 4 goes on: do not be anxious for anything. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me just stop here for a second and say the purpose of this right now is not to flog you for past failures of faith, even though we need to own our sin and repent. The point is we have reason to trust in the face of things that seem impossible. Luke 6:27 But I say to you who hear love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you <sighs> Like we can easily laugh that one off dismiss it We could add a lot more but I think you get the idea and I think we all need to personalize this. What are the promises that are really hard for us to believe? What are the commands for us that are really hard for us to embrace? And then, let's ask the question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Can he give grace for this? Can he make good on that promise? Isaac lived. We can Trust him. So consider the reasoning of Romans 8.32. Because remember, if God created a universe and billions of stars for each of the billions of galaxies, do you think he can create a miracle baby? Yes. So it's kind of the argument from the greater to the lesser, right? Well, listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he did the hardest thing, if he did the greatest thing, of course he can carry you all the way home. He can give you the grace to deal whatever, with whatever that impossible, seemingly impossible situation is that is on the race that's set before you. He did the hardest, most miraculous thing. Do you think you can trust him For whatever seems impossible that he has called you to or promised to you. So think about it. I think it's a good thing to talk with your community group folks about. Maybe grab one of them and share something that's really hard for you to believe and say, Would you pray that I would believe this? What promises of God are hardest for you to believe? What commands are the hardest to seem even realistic or possible? What are we going to believe God for in 2019? Anyone want to believe him for some miracles? (laughs) Some impossible things? Like, does this seem impossible in, you know, North Wilmington in our lives? The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you think God could actually, like, create a revival in Wilmington and use us? and see like a bunch of people come to faith in him do you think that's possible is there anything too hard for the lord and you know to use you so we're praying over the next year this this shouldn't be impossible shouldn't seem impossible but for some of us it's understandable it can one for one Like praying, Lord, use me to bring somebody, like to share the gospel of Jesus and see them come to faith. Like, if I want something in this next year, I want to see that happen. I want you to use me. Do you believe he could do that? Do you actually believe that will happen this next year if you ask him? Is anything too hard for the Lord? All right. So, God is able to do whatever he wants. But, will it be just? Will he do justice? Second main point. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Verses 16 to 33. So the main theme of the second half of this chapter is justice. Look at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and we know when we look at chapter 19 that two of the three visitors went down to Sodom, and one stayed behind with Abraham. The men set out from there. It seems like those two were angelic beings, and the Lord stays back with Abraham. The men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, notice, this is actually the Lord speaking first to himself. This is a, like a divine soliloquy, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So note why God chooses to disclose to Abraham what he's about to do. You see it? Abraham is going to be the one through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, right? Back in chapter 12. So, what God does with the nations is Abraham's business because God said it would be. Look at verses 18 and 19. Why will Abraham become such a great nation? You see it there? Because God has chosen him. He's literally known him, the word for to know. It's this intimate choice and knowledge. And then why did God choose him? To raise a covenant people, raise up a covenant people. You see it there? That he may... Command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So generational faithfulness from Abraham to his descendants on down the line. What's the result of that generational faithfulness? The fulfillment of the covenant promises. Blessing to the nations. So what's the point? Here, um, commentator Matthews writes this. He says, The Lord chose Abraham for the purpose of blessing all nations. This appointment also included the intermediary step of creating a righteous people whose conduct would be a beacon to the nations. Election means election to an ethical agenda in the midst of a corrupt world of Sodom's. Okay, so Abraham is supposed to command his children, pass this faith along so that they embody this righteousness and justice so that the promises are actualized through his faithful people. So God's obviously the one who's going to teach Abraham righteousness and justice. I mean, if Abraham doesn't trust God's righteousness and justice, how is he going to teach it to his children? So God brings Abraham into his decision to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, kind of like a prophet, informing him of what he's about to do. So, for instance, Amos 3 7 says this For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So, in a sense, God is treating Abraham like one of his prophets, but he's also treating Abraham like a friend here. Might not be immediately obvious, but stick with me here. So, there's several places in the Bible that Abraham is called God's friend, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, James 2, 23, and then listen, Isaiah 41, 8, God says to his people, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. It's amazing that the almighty God, creator of the universe, king of kings, would call a human being his friend, and yet this is how God treats Abraham. And not just Abraham. This is actually what Jesus says to his disciples as well, right? So listen to the language of bringing his disciples in on what he is doing. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So do you see how God is treating Abraham like a friend, bringing him in on what he's about to do. So this is true even for us, amazingly, if we're Jesus' disciples, made possible by the greatest display of love ever in the universe. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Okay, so... God's treating Abraham like a friend. Back to the narrative, verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, he's going to go check it out. Um, just one quick pause here. We can't stop after every line. But, you know, I think sometimes we chafe at the idea of God who judges and rains down punishment like he's going to do on Sodom and Gomorrah. But those same people, and this is sometimes us, when people are oppressed or abused, we want justice for those perpetrators, don't we? Well, a God of compassion and love must also be a God of justice and wrath. You can't have a God of love without a God of wrath and judgment. So Injustice, oppression, and abuse is taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah, and Yahweh's responding to the outcry. Their sin is very grave. There's this outcry that's just, and He's doing something about it here. He's, justice is about to be served. Okay, verse 21. So I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. This doesn't mean God has poor vision. I can't quite see. I need to go down there. Doesn't mean His, his knowledge is limited. This is a way of speaking kind of anthropomorphically of how careful he is with scrutiny. He's exercising this direct close attention before bringing such decisive judgment. Same thing with the Tower of Babel, right? He came down and judged because the judge of all the earth will indeed do right. So verse 22, the men... Turned from there, went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still, before, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, he's certainly concerned for Lot, but this is an example of him being a blessing of the whole world. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. It's pretty bold. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham obviously knows where his nephew lives. He said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again this but once, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So what do we see here? First off, The Lord's justice is based on accurate, exhaustive knowledge. Okay, God's judgment is never a knee-jerk, misinformed reaction. He comes down with careful scrutiny. Also, he's inviting Abraham, his friend, his people, by covenant, into his plans to execute justice. Abraham intercedes for the nations. He was called to and be, he was called and blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. And he's attempting to do that even with his appeals to reduce the number. And then just think of this. If there, were only, if there had only been 10 righteous people in Sodom, God would have spared it. I mean, that's incredible mercy. He will not sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. That's just how incredibly wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was, were. So here Abraham is mediating in the face of God's judgment. Moses did the same thing, didn't he? Remember after the golden calf? He says, Please forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book. Later on, Jeremiah, God commanded him to run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take notes, search her squares to see if you can find a man, one person that trust me, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon the city of Jerusalem. Sadly, there were none righteous except the mediator. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What if there were none righteous, not even one? What if the only righteous one was the one interceding? In fact, what if this whole mediation thing were just kind of turned on its head? What if one were to die for the many? Well, there is none righteous, no, not one. We all deserve to be swept away. We don't want justice, folks. We want mercy. We need mercy. And so the mediator had to come from outside of fallen humanity in order to rescue fallen humanity. So the ultimate mediator did come and he interceded for us, the Son of God taking on flesh. Praise God for Advent. Listen to these texts. This is good news. God our Savior, 1 Timothy 2.3, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So this mediator took that work all the way to the cross. Isaiah 53, 12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So will God sweep the righteous away with the wicked? No. He's just. Righteous Yahweh will not destroy the righteous with the wicked, but righteous Yahweh will crush the righteous one for the wicked that we, the wicked, may become righteous by his grace through faith in his righteous son. So the judgment of God has been, is, and will be just. We can trust him. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, yes, he will. And so the question is, do we trust him in that? If you trust him, first off, you won't be swept away. Yes even though that's what we deserve. It's what everybody deserves. And then, as His righteous people, we will most certainly suffer injustice under the sun in this broken world. We will grieve and we will groan over all the injustice in this world. We will wonder why God doesn't act more quickly to judge, but we can trust Him because His knowledge is exhaustive, unlike ours. He has purposes Wait for it. Wait for those purposes. The judge of all the earth will indeed do right. And in the meantime, you and I as believers can intercede for God to be merciful, to turn more wicked hearts from wickedness to righteousness We can let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works, righteous deeds, and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. So listen, brothers and sisters, if we're going to believe God for the impossible, right? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Anybody? No. If we're going to trust His sometimes delayed and inscrutable justice because the judge of all the earth will do right, and if we're going to be his merciful mediators, beacons of justice and righteousness, we need him, don't we? <laughs> Doesn't that like help you feel how much you need him? Like I, I, I want to believe, help my unbelief. I, I need you. So we're going to close with that song as a prayer. Lord, I need you. So the musicians can come up and we'll... Close with that song. So, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help it because of what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name that we can pray, that we can come with confidence to your throne, knowing that we can receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. So help our unbelief because of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name.